Our sermon text today is Matthew 5. I'm only going to be reading verses 1 and 2. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he had seated his, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we have ascended to the mountain of the Lord. And uh, we will be seated in a moment and we pray that you would teach us once more. Help us, Lord, to understand what happens when we ascend into your presence and then when we are sent forth from it. Grant us this. Bless us now in our study. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you and please be seated. Well, today we come to the Sermon on the Mount, which I think it's safe to say is not only the most famous sermon Jesus ever preached, but also the most famous sermon that's ever been preached in the history of the world. And uh, I have every confidence that will remain true until the end of time. Because Jesus... Sermon on the Mount is, because the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' most famous and beloved sermon, the amount of ink that has been spilled over this sermon, I think it's probably next to impossible to calculate the articles and books that seek to explain the sermon are, are, are nearly endless. And as a result, I have no illusions that we'll be able to really do adequate justice to all that we can learn from this sermon. But I do hope that we can get to the heart of the things Jesus wants us to take away from the Sermon on the Mount. But to do that, it's going to take a bit of work on our part to sort through various perspectives on this wonderful and fascinating sermon. So for that reason, You notice today we're only looking at two verses which set the context for the sermon. Well, if you look at the sermon title, you notice it says part one. That means part two is coming next week over the same two verses. The reason we're going to spend so much time just setting the context for the Sermon on the Mount is because there's considerable disagreement over how to interpret Jesus' words in the sermon. But my hope is that by laying some groundwork and setting forth some parameters, we can clear away some of the controversy surrounding the sermon and get to the the heart of it and get to the primary message that it's intended to convey. As we embark on this effort, though, I'm going to ask you, please be patient with me for uh, for a time. If this week and next week I do more teaching than preaching, I promise you there will be plenty of the latter uh, uh, in the weeks to come. 
But we first have to lay a solid foundation upon which to build the sermons that will follow. In fact, I'm, I'm very excited about much of what I'm going to share in the weeks to come, but we've got to do some prep work before we get there. Okay? So, with that in mind, let's start today, part one, talking about the context of the Sermon on the Mount as it fits in to the overall message of Matthew's Gospel. I have been arguing from the beginning that Matthew is presenting the story of Jesus as the story of Israel retold. For this reason, we've seen many of the events in Jesus' life harken back to Israel's history, either by direct quotation of Old Testament events or allusions to them. The first portion of Matthew's gospel, we've seen this repeatedly by how Jesus' life repeats many of the events associated particularly with Israel's exodus from Egypt. There is a miraculous deliverance of a baby born to deliver his people. There's a flight to Egypt followed by a return after the death of a murderous king, all similar to what was experienced by Moses. That is followed by Jesus' baptism in a river, which is followed by temptation in the wilderness, and then the performance of miracles to gather a large multitude around himself. Not surprisingly then, the next thing we read at the opening of our text is that Jesus ascends a mountain to instruct the people gathered around him. And though it's not apparent yet, the sermon that follows, the Sermon on the Mount, largely has to do with God's law. Particularly how to properly interpret and apply it. Because the events of Jesus' life have thus far reminded us of events associated with Moses leading Israel out of Egypt to be baptized in the Red Sea, tempted in the wilderness, and given the law at Mount Sinai, many scholars over the years have argued that Matthew presents Jesus as a new and greater Moses. I've argued the same. I think there's a uh, oh, I, it, it's very clear, at least, in the first section of Matthew's gospel. So for reasons that I'll explain later, I believe the Moses parallels will later give way to Jesus reenacting Israel's later history, including, you know, periods of the conquests, judges, kings, etc. But everyone has agreed, for the time being, that The early portions of Matthew's gospel is making all sorts of echoes back to Israel, the deliverance from Egypt, baptism in the Red Sea, temptation in the wilderness, and then a sermon about the law from a mountaintop. Okay? First thing I want to, with that in mind, first thing I want to see today is that another reason scholars have for a long time believed that Matthew 
purposely draws parallels between Moses and Jesus is because he structures his gospel around five large sermons or discourses which naturally call to mind the five books of Moses with which the Bible begins. Let me encourage you, uh, I don't know, some of you follow along with the outline I put at the, at the back of your order of worship every week. I really encourage you to do that today. It's a little more involved than normal, but there's some notes there in the back. Besides for all these thematic elements, another way that Matthew presents Jesus like it knew Moses is that he, he structures his gospel around five large sermons or discourses that call to mind the five books of Moses. Okay? To explain what I mean, you can look at this later if you have a Bible with you or on your phone or whatever. You have a Bible that has the words of Jesus written in red. You can visibly see the division of Matthew's gospel into five sermons. To briefly illustrate, in the first four chapters, Matthew principally tells the story of Jesus while Jesus only speaks intermittently, and that only a small bit. So chapters 1 to 4, mostly words are in black. But when you come to the Sermon on the Mount, virtually everything follows is read, all the way to near the end of chapter 7. Then you come to chapters 8 and 9, primarily black portions return with Matthew again, narrating events in Jesus' life while Jesus speaks sporadically. Then you come to chapter 10, and you have another large red section in which Jesus preaches another sermon. And this continues again a total of five times. Now, you don't have to have a Bible with the words of Jesus in red to see this. Just so happens that Matthew ends each of the five discourses with nearly the exact same words. In each case, he says something like, when Jesus had finished these things, or when Jesus had finished that, when Jesus had finished this or that, as a way to draw the reader's attention to each discourse, which stands out from the narrative portions in between. Okay? So you got narrative, a discourse, narrative, a discourse, etc. Five discourses. Okay? Now, obviously, Jesus preached more than five sermons during his three and a half year ministry. But Matthew chooses five of Jesus' sermons to structure his gospel around. Likely in order to demonstrate that Jesus is the prophet likened to Moses that the Lord foretold in Deuteronomy 18 he would someday send to his people. Okay? Moses gives us five books. Jesus is going to give us five sermons. Keep that in mind. More on that in a few minutes. Now, in addition... I want us also to uh, uh, note that this sermon 
that we're about to, to study is famously known as the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? Don't, don't. Wouldn't, I, want, I want us to think about this. We, we, can, we can just, okay, so Jesus was on a high place when he preached this and just skip over it. Okay? I want you to understand. Now, Luke's going to give a sermon on the plain. All right? But this is a sermon on the mount. And it's not a coincidence that it's preached from a mountain. And the obvious reason, of course, is what we said. Because Matthew is keeping with his Moses parallels at the opening of his gospel. And so just as Moses went up a mountain to receive the law and bring it back down to the people, so likewise Jesus is going to give a sermon about the law from a mountain before coming back down. But what I want us to see today is that Jesus will ascend mountains numerous times in Matthew's gospel, including for his fifth and final discourse, found in Matthew 24 and 25, known as the Olivet Discourse, because it's given from the Mount of Olives overlooking the city of Jerusalem and its temple. And what I want to see today is that this too is not a coincidence, but is also in keeping with Matthew's purpose in writing his gospel in the manner he does. Okay? What I'm saying is the first and last discourses are going to contrast with one another. To explain. Throughout the Bible, mountains are places where heaven and earth meet. Therefore, going up a mountain is often depicted as an ascent from earth toward heaven. Therefore, mountains are a place where heaven and earth intersect so that God often meets with man on mountaintops. We see this in the first instance with the Garden of Eden, which we know was located on a mountain because four rivers flowed from it and water only flows downhill. Not surprisingly then, Moses went up Mount Sinai to meet with God so that God could not only give him the law, but also plans for the tabernacle. The earthly tabernacle, the author of Hebrews tells us, was based on the heavenly pattern. Later, when the temple is built, it's built on Mount Moriah, the place where Abraham's near sacrifice of Isaac occurred many centuries before. Okay? In summary, just as the first, the first creation centered on a mountain, all subsequent new creations had mountains central to them. There's Ararat with Noah, Moriah with Abraham, Sinai with Moses, Zion with David, and so on. Not surprisingly then, in Daniel's vision of the coming of the kingdom of God, in Daniel 2, he sees a stone strike a statue that, that, rec- that represents the kingdoms of the earth. Then that stone grows into a huge mountain that fills the whole earth. Okay. Given all this historical background, then we should not be surprised that mountains and mountaintop experiences are going to be closely associated with Jesus throughout his ministry. 
which has as its aim the announcement of the kingdom of God and of God's new creation. To my point, in a a fascinating study by Warren Gage, Gage notes that Jesus' whole history can be seen as a series of mountaintop experiences moving through seven mountains. Just so happens, if you go back to Exodus and read very closely, you'll find that Moses ascended Sinai seven times to meet with the Lord on the mountain. So likewise, Jesus is going to do the same. And we already encountered uh, the first mountain experience when Satan took Jesus on a high mountain, remember, to show him the kingdoms of the world. Jesus, of course, he refused Satan's offer. But at the end of Matthew's gospel, he will announce from a mountain that he has received all the kingdoms of the earth, not by bowing to Satan, but by obedience to his father. In between, we have the Sermon on the Mount today. Later, we're going to see Jesus will ascend a mountain to pray in Matthew 14. He'll feed a a multitude from a mountain in chapter 15. He'll be transfigured on a mountain in chapter 17. And as we already mentioned, he'll preach his last sermon from the Mount of Olives. And he will commission the disciples from a mountain of Galilee for a total of seven ascents up a mountain before ascending into heaven. Okay. As we progress in our study, we'll make a point of mentioning every time Jesus ascends a mountain and the significance of it when he does. For our purposes today, however, the thing I want us to note is that this sermon comes from a mountain. And that is not merely a literary detail for the sake of recreating the scene in our minds. On the contrary, it is packed with theological significance, which is explained when we keep everything that we've thus said in mind. Okay? Think about this with me for a moment. The first part of his gospel, Matthew presents Jesus as a new and greater Moses. In the verses just prior to our text, at the end of chapter 4, Jesus performed all sorts of miracles by healing people of every sort. As a result, he draws a vast multitude himself, not unlike the way Moses does after the miraculous plagues the Lord brought upon Egypt. Therefore, having gathered a multitude around himself, a new Israel, if you will. Jesus ascends a mountain, just as Moses did at Sinai, to preach a sermon that's all about how he has come, not to abolish, but to fulfill the law. And so when we put all this together, it means that just as Moses went up Mount Sinai to into heaven, so to speak, to receive the law to deliver to the people. So likewise, Jesus, who is God incarnate, delivers the words of the kingdom of heaven to the people gathered around him on earth. 
And just as Moses received the pattern of the heavenly sanctuary to provide a model for the construction of the earthly tabernacle, so likewise Jesus goes to the mountaintop to bring God's word, God's law to the people so that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What I want us to understand today is that the words he shares in the Sermon on the Mount will provide the blueprint for how that will be done. He's going to give us the prayer, the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. We're to pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, how is that going to take place? Well, by, by, by obeying what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. He's gone into heaven to the mountaintop. He's given the law. He's given the, the heavenly pattern. And now he's bringing it down to us and say, here's how that's going to happen. Put it another way. Jesus is gathering around himself a new Israel. A multitude that's already been delivered. Already brought out of Egypt. Delivered from the bondage of Satan. Of every disease and illness. To these people, Jesus gives instruction about the kingdom of heaven. Which is coming through his person and work. And he is giving them his law, his Torah, from a mountain in order to make of those gathered around him a city that is set on a hill. That cannot be hidden. Moreover, they are to become a light to the nations. Because just as Moses was transfigured by the Lord's presence from the mountain, so also all those who are gathered around Jesus to hear the words of the kingdom of heaven will be transformed by his presence so they can go down the mountain and be lights. Here's what I want us to learn from all that we've heard today. Every Sunday in our worship, we ascend to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, where we dwell in the Lord's presence and hear him speak to us from his word. And the reason we do is the same. By the Lord's presence, we are transfigured to become a light to the world in darkness. That's why worship is so important. And we receive God's word so that when we come down the mountain, we go out into the world, we have the heavenly pattern to show us how to build God's kingdom on earth so that his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what, the, that's what happens every week. It's the pattern. One thing I want us to, leave, to think about today is this. What we must remember today is that it's not enough to be merely hearers of the word on Sunday. We must be doers of the week then in the week that follows. And we must never forget that Israel... You know, they, they came to Sinai. They heard God's voice thunder from the mountain. They saw the flashes of lightning. So they were struck with fear. But when Moses tarried on the mountain for a time, they quickly forgot all that. And they began to worship a golden calf. 
says that he, as we're going to see in Matthew's gospel, something similar happens to some of Jesus' followers. Keeping in mind those Moses parallels once more, after Moses gave God, Israel God's law, he promised them that if the nation kept God's law, the Lord would bless them. But he also warned them that if they broke God's law, he would curse them. That's why we heard in our, our reading from Deuteronomy earlier, Moses, after giving the law, he set a choice before the people. Life and death, blessing and cursing. What we're going to see in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus will also set forth a choice before the people. You can be like the wise man who builds his house on the rock, or you can be like the foolish man who builds his house on the stone. It's up to you to decide. What we're going to see in Matthew's gospel is Jesus comes offering blessing. In his first sermon, remember, okay, first mountain experience, get, you can have the kingdoms of the world. Last, last mountain experience, I've got all the kingdoms of the world. Second mountain experience, blessing are you, blessed are you, beatitudes. The next to last, Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Okay? In other words, in his first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus opens with a series of, of, of beatitudes or blessings. He pronounces on those who live by faith and whose righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and, and Pharisees. But sadly, when Jesus speak, uh, preaches his last sermon from the Mount of Olives, he pronounces a series of curses or woes upon the leaders of Israel. In total... There are eight contrasting beatitudes and woes. And again, the choice is up to Israel. And now us, will we be like the wise virgins or the foolish virgins, the sheep or the goats? All that and so much more is contained in this magnificent sermon, which teaches us what it means as people called to follow Jesus To do the will of the Father in heaven and be the people God has called us to be. A city set on a hill and a light to the nations. And in doing so, it teaches us how to receive the Lord's blessings and how to avoid his judgment. That, in summary, is the context of the Sermon on the Mount. That is what is at stake in the weeks that will follow And so in preparation for what is to come, let me admonish you today as we begin our study, the most famous sermon ever preached, to choose life, that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Most gracious Lord, we have heard your word. We have been to the mountaintop. We receive it. Lord, be with us as you send us forth from here this week to be that city set on the hill. Help us to be the light to the nations. Help us to understand that the words that Jesus speaks are the words of life. Grant us this, Lord, we pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Continue to worship the Lord by bringing forth his tithes and our offerings.